Our gracious Father, we thank you again for your great word and we ask now that you would humble our hearts before it. You would teach us your ways, show us the truth of your Son and grow us in our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if it was the same for you, but when I was in primary school, the way that you showed you were better than your friends was to talk up your dad and to trash talk their dads. Uh, And so often the conversation would go like this, my dad could beat up your dad, easy. And then someone else would say, my dad could beat up all of your dads with his arms tied behind his back. Uh, Or someone would say, my dad, he can eat 10 Big Macs. And someone else would be like, my dad can eat 100 Big Macs and 1,000 soft serve ice creams. And, uh, you know, it was all kind of very petty what kind of primary school teenagers like to argue about. Uh, It was always a little bit kind of awkward for me because... My dad was always so gentle and humble, and he didn't really eat very much McDonald's. Um, But no, I love my dad. Uh, But in today's passage, we see something a little bit like that. We see kind of like petty, lame, trash-talking going on. Except it's not between primary-age kids, it's between grown men, between the kings of nations, which is all a little bit embarrassing. But before we get there... It's time to do a bit of a recap and see where we've been in 1 Kings recently. Over the last few uh, weeks, we've been focused on the north kingdom of God's people called Israel. And we've seen the story really focus on Elijah, God's faithful prophet. And we've kind of seen the rivalry between Elijah on the one hand, and then on the other hand, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Time and time again, uh, through Elijah, God shows himself to be the true God of Israel. He shows King Ahab that the so-called other gods, like Baal, are nothing. And that he is the true God of Israel, the one and only God, in fact. But King Ahab, he keeps failing the test, doesn't he? He sees God's power, he hears God's word, but he doesn't respond rightly. Today's passage is no different, sadly. And 1 Kings finishes with three final episodes, three final stories about Ahab that we're going to look at over the next three weeks. And in each episode we see again and again, we're reminded again of Ahab's weakness and his failure and his ungodliness. So Elijah, Ahab's annoying rival, he's out of Ahab's hair for a while, but now Ahab faces a new threat, a new enemy, the nation of Aram, or Syria as we call it up to the northeast. And we meet the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad. So come with me, let's explore this episode. It's another cracker of a story. These cracker of a stories just kind of keep coming, don't they? Uh, This chapter is uh, like one of those scenes in a movie of a great giant battlefield. Uh, Here's the situation. The new threat Ahab is facing is in chapter 20, verse 1. It says, Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, assembled his entire army. Thirty-two kings, along with horses and chariots, were with him. He marched up, besieged Samaria, that's Israel's capital where Ahab lives, and fought against it. So with the city surrounded, verse 2, he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, This is what Ben-Hadad says. Sounds quite high and mighty, doesn't it? Your silver and gold are mine, and your best wives and children are mine as well. What's going on here? Here's this battle scene 
uh, picture, they surround the city. Well, we see what's going on here is that Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, is a tyrant. He's a big bully and he's not the kind of guy you want to mess with because he has a massive army. He has his own army and then he has 32 other kings and their armies with him in his entourage. These 32 kings, they're the kings that he has defeated and then enslaved. He's the king of these kings. He owns them. He owns their land. They pay tribute and tax to him. That's what a powerful king did in those days and even today. When you go to war against another nation and you defeat them, they become part of your empire. You rule over them and you take a hefty tax in order to leave them alone in peace. And this is what Ben-Hadad wants to do to Ahab in Israel. Ben-Hadad wants to make Ahab king number 33 of his entourage. And so he offers Ahab an ultimatum. Become a slave to me. I will own everything you have, your kingdom, and you will pay tribute to me. Or, if you refuse, we'll just knock down your wall and kill everyone. Basically, he has a gun to Ahab's head and says, sign this contract, please. That's the situation Ahab is facing here. And so he has to make a decision, doesn't he? Do I give in or do I hand over control of everything? Or do I fight back and risk losing everything? What does Ahab do? Well, again, he shows himself to be weak-willed and he bows the knee. Look at verse 4. Then the king of Israel answered, Just as you say, my lord the king, Ahab just gives in and calls him, says, You're the boss. I am yours, along with all that I have. And in one sense, maybe Ahab's being a bit wise here, right? You know, if you know you can't win, then yield, give in. If you can't beat them, join them. Save your life, save the lives of your people. But shouldn't Ahab have known the power and the word of the Lord? the God of Israel. And if he had trusted them, so if they had trusted him, he would deliver them from their enemies. Shouldn't Ahab know that to fear God, not man, is the way of wisdom? Even a powerful man like Ben-Hadad. Proverbs 29 puts it like this. The fear of man is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. But Ahab gives in. Ben-Hadad, being the tyrant that he is, likes this. He's happy with it. But then he thinks, I'm going to take it a step further. He's not content just to have Israel pay tribute to him each year. He wants more. And so look at verse 5 and 6. He says, okay, Ahab, uh, I'm glad this was easy. Oh, by the way, tomorrow I'm going to send some of my guys to you. They're going to come into your palace and just kind of look around every room and open every cupboard and and just take everything that they think is valuable. Okay? Cool. You can almost hear Ben-Hadad laughing as he sends this message to Ahab. And at this, Ahab decides to get a bit of backbone. He gets some advice from the elders, and then he goes back to big old Ben-Hadad, and he says, uh, probably with his tail between his legs, uh, No, Ben-Hadad, I already, agreed, I already agreed that we'd be part of your kingdom, uh, but... You can't come and take whatever you want. Which is a pretty bold move, isn't it? Because Ben-Hadad, well, he now loses his cool. He's not having a bar of this. And so he and Ahab enter into this sledging match, this kind of trash talking that I was talking about before, kind of like primary school kids. It's actually 
kind of funny. And look at verse 10. Ben-Hadad says, he says, uh, May the gods punish me and do so severely if Samaria's dust amounts to a handful for each one of the people who follow me. So he's saying, we're going to grind you guys to dust. And so then Ahab says, I love this, look at verse 11. He says, Don't let the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. Don't get ahead of yourself, mate. Don't boast yet. You haven't won yet. And so the tensions are high. But at this point, Ben-Hadad, he's not too worried. He's just getting drunk in the tents. And his army takes up positions around the city of Samaria. Ahab, he's in a bit of a pickle now. Uh, I wonder if at this point he feels like he's poked a bear and now he regrets it. Uh, But it's time then for round one of the fight. Aram, uh, Israel versus Aram, Ahab versus Ben-Hadad. Uh, but then, during, at the very beginning of this, something incredible happens. Before it all goes down, in verse 13, the word of the Lord comes to Ahab. God speaks and he makes a promise to Ahab. Look at verse 13. After Ahab has continually ignored the word of God, look at what happens. A prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, This is what the Lord, Yahweh, the true God of Israel, says. Do you see this great entire army? Watch. I am handing it over to you today so that you may know that I am Yahweh. After all of Ahab's rebellion, after Israel refused to turn from false gods and worship the true God of Israel, well, God still chooses to be gracious. He's still devoted to his people and he still calls them back to himself. He says to Ahab, I will prove it to you yet again that I am Yahweh. I am the one true and powerful God. Just watch and trust me. And Ahab seems to respond rightly. He's, he's desperate at this point. He listens and he says, okay, God, how is this going to happen? What's our battle plan? God says, you get it started. You take action. Just trust me. So in the middle of the day, with the odds totally stacked against them, Israel's army marches out of the city. Ben-Hadad hears about this and he says, if they're coming out in peace, take them alive. And if they're coming to fight, take them alive. Maybe he's just a little bit too drunk to know what he's saying at this point. Uh, Or maybe he's just so confident that he can just take them alive without even a fight. That's how greedy and proud this tyrant is. He thinks he can enslave them like that. And so what happens? Well, very quickly, Ben-Hadad has to eat his own words because Yahweh fights for Israel. Look at how simply it's put in verse 20. It says, And each one, each Israelite, struck down his opponent. So the Arameans and Israel, so the Arameans fled and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. Then the king of Israel marched out and attacked the cavalry and the chariots. He inflicted a great slaughter on Aram. Whose tail is between their legs now? God promises and then he delivers. Yahweh fights for his people, Israel. And at this time, Ahab, he listens to God, doesn't he? God promises and Ahab listens. It looks like he's trusting God here. And it it starts to make us wonder, is is something happening here? 
Is this the beginning of something? Is he finally going to turn and repent and say, Yahweh, you are God. And God continues to give Ahab a second chance because his word comes to Ahab again and says, look at verse 22. He says, Go and strengthen yourself. Build up your army. Then consider what you should do, for in the spring the king of Aram will march against you again. Keep trusting me, Ahab, God says. I delivered you this time, but they're coming again. There will be round two, so get ready. But Aram and Ben-Hadad, they are getting ready too. If you look at verse 22 and on, the Arameans, they rationalize their loss. This is what we as humans do. We, we rationalize, we, we blame someone else, or we, we turn to superstition like this. They say, ah, ah, it must have been because their gods are the gods of the hills and the mountains. That's why we lost. Next time we fight them, we should fight them on the plain. Then we will win because our gods will be stronger there. And so they take a break, regroup, and next year it's time for round two of Israel versus Aram. <clears throat> and this time the battle happens on the plain at Aphek on Aram's home turf. And you have to picture this scene with me. Just look at how terrifying it is. Look at verse 27, halfway through. It says, The Israelites camped in front of them, Aram, like two little flocks of goats, while the Arameans filled the landscape. How good is that description? Two little flocks of goats, just a little patch of Israelites. But the Arameans, they just cover all the face of the land. Again, the odds are totally stacked against Israel. They need a miracle to get through this. And then a miracle is promised. God's prophet turns up yet again, and look at what he says to Ahab, verse 28. This is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans have said, Yahweh is a God of the mountains and not a God of the valleys, I will hand all over all this great army to you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. He makes a promise and he gives a reason, doesn't he? The promise is, despite being totally outnumbered, I will give you victory, God says. And the reason is, God will not be mocked. This battle is God's judgment against Aram for their false words about him. They think he's just the God of the mountains. God will show them that he is God of the mountains and the valleys and the plains and all creation, the one true and powerful God. God will hold to account those who mock him, those who speak false words about him, those who undermine him and his holiness. And so again, this is a moment, this is a call for Ahab to trust in Yahweh, in the true God of Israel. It's a moment of his grace again. He's fighting for his people. He's giving another opportunity to turn and trust in him. So, how does it all go? Well, it goes exactly as God promised it would. Look at verse 29. Israel thrashes Aram again. It says, the Israelites struck down the Arameans 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. The ones who remained in the city, 
the ones who remained fled into the city of Aphek, and Israel took the city as well, and another 27,000 men fell. With just two little flocks of goats, God has fought for his people. God's word prevails. God gives the victory to Ahab. And he and his, uh, and ben, but then Ben-Hadad, they don't know where he's gone. I mean, he's nowhere to be seen. And it turns out now that this big bully is now cowering in the corner. He's hiding in an inner room of the city. And he and his servants have come up with a plan. They've heard that the kings of Israel are merciful kings. And so they're going to surrender. And they're going to beg Ahab for mercy. That's their play. And so out they come, Ben-Hadad's servants. They're dressed in sackcloth and they've got ropes on their heads, maybe to say, our lives are in your hands. Kill us if you want. And their message from Ben-Hadad is, please spare my life. How low has this tyrant been brought? And it's at this point that Ahab, he sees an opportunity. Look at the end of verse 32. He says, is he still alive? Is Ben-Hadad still alive? He is my brother. Not enemy, not slave, brother. See, Ahab is looking to take advantage of the situation, to make peace, to, to broker a deal. And this is good news for Ben-Hadad, and so they, they come out a little bit excited from their hiding place. Ben-Hadad, he, he makes Ahab an offer. He says, look, Ahab, in exchange for my life, I'll give you back the cities that we took from you. And you can set up markets in Damascus, in our capital city, so you can make money from us. You can cash in. That's my offer to you for my life. What does Ahab think? Look at the end of verse 34. Ahab responded, on the basis of this treaty, I release you. So he made a treaty with him and released him. God promised victory over Aram. And what does Ahab do? Well, he uses it for political gain. He uses it to serve himself. And then we see what God thinks of this. His assessment of Ahab in the last part of the chapter. And there we see God's parable against Ahab. And again, we get kind of a slightly weird story in the book of 1 Kings. There's a few of those. Uh, God decides to rebuke Ahab with a parable. And there's kind of weird circumstances that bring it, bring it about. Uh, we didn't get to read it before, the, the end of the chapter. And we won't have time to look at it all now. But at the end of the chapter, these strange events, this strange parable happens. So God sends one of his prophets to Ahab. And he looks just like a soldier from the battlefield. He's got an injury and he's got a bandage on his head. And as Ahab passes by, he cries out to Ahab. Ahab stops and then he tells Ahab this made-up story. But Ahab doesn't know that it's made up. He thinks it's real. So look at the story, verse 39. The prophet says to Ahab, I, your servant, marched out into the middle of the battle today. Suddenly, a man, a fellow Israelite, turned aside and brought someone, a captive enemy, to me and said, guard this man. If he is ever missing, if you lose him, it will be your life in place of his life. Or you will weigh out 75 pounds of silver. It'll cost you a lot. Verse 40, but while I, your servant, was busy here and there, the prisoner disappeared. 
He's saying, I was meant to be guarding a prisoner, Ahab, but I got distracted and I lost him. Can you please intervene? Can you help me, King Ahab? I'm going to get in trouble. And Ahab replies, yeah, you should get in trouble. You agreed to watch him and then you lost him. So you should face the consequences. That just makes sense. And it's at this point that Ahab, he has no idea, but he has condemned himself with his own words. Because what does the prophet do then? Well, in a dramatic moment, he strips off the bandage off his head and and he reveals his identity. And Ahab, he recognizes him. He's one of those pesky prophets of Yahweh. And then the prophet, well, he brings this parable home to bear on Ahab. He uses Ahab's own words against him. He says, Ahab, you are the man in the parable. Look at verse 42. The prophet said to him, This is what the Lord says. Because you released from your hand the man I had set apart for destruction, just like the guy in the parable, it will be your life in place of his life and your people in place of his people. You see what he's saying? God says, I gave Ben-Hadad into your hands, Ahab. You were meant to execute this tyrant. That was one of the jobs of God's king, to do justice. But instead, what did you do, Ahab? You let him go. And so now, instead of his untimely death, it will be your untimely death, Ahab. And instead of Israel's, instead of uh, now, Israel will suffer instead of Aram, because you did not trust me. So this was another chance, another test to see if Ahab would humble himself and listen to the word of Yahweh. God has again proven he is Yahweh. He is the true God of Israel. He is the one and only God, God of the mountains and the valleys, God of all creation, of all time, and who fights for his people. Ahab has seen it before his very eyes. He fails the test again. God fights for Israel, but Ahab fights for himself. It's his selfishness, it's his greed, it's his political gain that gets the better of him. He has no concern for the glory of God, no sense of God's righteousness and justice that would rightly bring an evil tyrant, a God mocker like Ben-Hadad to justice. What would King David have done in this situation think about it a man after god's own heart wouldn't if he have wouldn't he have executed ben hadad for his mockery of god for his proud arrogance for his ruthless violence against so many people well think about what king jesus will do when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead he will bring to justice every evil king every tyrant like ben hadad But weak-willed Ahab makes a treaty with an evil king like this. Something God specifically commanded his people not to do. Something that Israel had done in the past only with destructive consequences. And so we finish off chapter 20 with Ahab being a grumpy little kid again. And he goes home into Samaria resentful and angry at God because of his word. And so the famine of people in Israel who fear the Lord just keeps going. Ahab is still the same. Nothing 
has changed. And as we bring it together for us today, just as we finish off, in a sense, there's, there's nothing really new in this chapter of 1 Kings. This chapter is really saying the same thing that 1 Kings has been saying time and time again. First, this chapter shows us that God is fighting for his people. Just like with Israel here, he continues to show grace when we sin. He calls his people back to him, back to his ways. And just like with Israel here, he continues to protect and sustain his people, even if we don't deserve it, according to his gracious promises. See, this chapter reminds me of those wonderful words in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can suffering or famine or nakedness or danger? No, in all these things we are more than victorious. God gives the victory because nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus. God is fighting for his people. He has defeated sin and death for us. And now he is working all things for the good of those who love him. What encouragement. Which leads to our second, trusting in God's word. In 1 Kings 20, again, we see God's word is always right and true, isn't it? But God's people, especially Ahab, will not listen, will not trust, will not obey. God's word is life. It gives life. It leads to life. And so this chapter reminds us to always listen, always strive to trust and obey his good word no matter what. It reminds me of uh, these words from Hebrews chapter 3. Watch out, brothers, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God, like Ahab, for example. As it is said, Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't be like Ahab. Listen to, trust in, and obey the good word of our good God whenever we hear him speak in his scriptures. And finally, we see Ahab continues to serve as the opposite example we should follow. Because what does the Apostle Paul say? about the kind of thing we see Ahab doing in this chapter. In Colossians 3, he says, Therefore, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature, including greed, which is idolatry. In 1 Kings 20, God's power is on display. His faithful love for his people is constantly shown, but Ahab would rather chase after false gods. Ahab would rather the idols of greed and power and political gain. And Ahab continues to serve as a picture of the opposite of what God's king should be, doesn't he? And there's a thousand ways that we could think about how our king, Jesus, is the total opposite to King Ahab. But he's just one. Like I said, there's a thousand. He's just one. Mark 10, verse 45. These famous words. Jesus says this, Would Ahab do this says for even the son of man that's jesus did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many doesn't sound like ahab does it 
Ahab would not lay down his life for others. And as we see King Ahab fail, we know all the more that King Jesus does not fail. That he doesn't chase selfish gain. That he lays down his life for us. And as we see ungodly King Ahab, doesn't it make us appreciate all the more our glorious King and Lord Jesus? Well, let's give him glory as we pray now. Our gracious Father, we give you thanks again for the Lord Jesus, our King, the Prince of Peace, the one who has bought our salvation by laying down his life for us. And we praise you that you have done this wonderful work and brought us this wonderful gospel. But Father, we pray that you would help us to learn from the poor example of Ahab, help us to glory in Jesus all the more, and help us to follow our King so that we might not chase the things of this world, but that we would instead trust every word that comes from your mouth and follow our King Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.